2: What are the most successful change leaders of today doing that makes them stand out? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is this week's host... Good morning and welcome to the
3: show. This is Randy Chittum. Uh I am hosting the second of three consecutive conversations about organizational culture. And as I mentioned last week, I think part of my interest in doing this is just that I think coaches and even leaders to some extent are always at risk of potentially underestimating the power uh, of the environment and the context in which leadership is happening. Uh, I co-direct the uh, Transformational Leadership Program uh, and teach in the Leadership Coaching Program all in the Institute. To start us, last week, we spoke with Jerry McDonough of Lead First, who talked us through their 30 years of measuring and research and working with organizations that are intentional about trying to create culture. That was a great start. And then today, we're going to shift our focus a bit towards the people who most influence that culture, uh, namely its leaders. Last week Jerry also used a quote that I really like, Uh, we shape our buildings and then we are shaped by them and he used that as a metaphor for understanding the interplay between leadership and culture and so we're going to explore that intersection in a much deeper way today and to that end I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Jackie Cranford. Jackie, good morning.
0: Good morning, Randy, and thank you for inviting me.
3: It is absolutely our pleasure. Uh, for those of you who may not know Jackie, she is an expert in the area of unconscious bias and has worked internally in talent management and now uh, consults and works with others through her firm, Cranford Advisory Services. She is also an affiliate of the Renee Myers Consulting Group, and some of you may know Renee's name. She's been on this show before and is kind of out there in the world. Um, I will tell you, Jackie and I have had several conversations getting ready for this, and Jackie loves to talk about unconscious bias, so we have the right person on the phone. And I know that I've already learned uh, a number of different things, Jackie, from talking to you. So, thank you for what we've done so far. So, again, welcome to the show. And I wonder if you could just get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your practice. And I'd particularly be interested in what uh, draws you to this work, if you can fit that in somewhere.
0: Sure. I think I will start with what draws me to this work, because as as I often tell my clients, I've been interested in issues of diversity and inclusion and justice all my life. Um, It's one of those things that as a, I happen to be a black woman, and so early on in my life as a black girl, noticing race and difference and noticing its impact on me. Also, my father was in the Army. He was an enlisted man in the Army as opposed to an officer. So I started to notice class distinctions early in life. And then at one phase in my youth, I had uh, experienced poverty. So all of these things, experienced poverty, being the child of an enlisted man in the Army, moving around, living abroad when I was very young, getting exposed to a lot of cultures, a lot of different people, noticing diversity, even before I could articulate what it was that I was noticing. Mm. All of these things really drove my interest in diversity. And then I chose to become a lawyer. So I ended up going into a profession that was overwhelmingly, was and still is, overwhelmingly dominated by white men. And having chosen that profession and going into a large law firm right out of law school, Looking around, there were no women of color in the partnership, no senior people in the firm. And so, in fact, the firm really engaged me early on to start helping them with diversity and inclusion. And at that time, it was really, you know, Jackie, we're glad to have you. Will you help us recruit more? And I was, of course, happy to do that. I didn't want it to stay as undiverse as it was at the time. So, these issues have been my passion growing up, throughout my career. And then after practicing law for about six years, both in private practice and then for a while at the Department of Justice, I had the opportunity to transition into talent management. And I jumped at that opportunity because all through my legal career, as I was practicing law, I was also focusing on diversity and inclusion in terms of recruiting. I was working on talent management, working on various firm committees, trying to make sure that the experience that those of us who were coming into these law firms had in terms of our growth, our development, our inclusiveness, was good and great. So when the opportunity came to transition fully into talent management, I took that opportunity and was able to start working at my firm, the firm that I'd grown up in, as a person who was leading talent management initiatives. So that's sort of how I ended up doing this work, how I've transitioned from being a practicing lawyer into talent management, and now I've left law firm life and I've I am a consultant who goes back into law departments, nonprofits, uh, for-profit legal organizations and talk to them about all things talent management with a focus often on diversity and inclusion. If you are bringing in diverse talent, what are you doing to cultivate that talent? What are you doing to cultivate a culture and an environment that is inclusive and welcoming? So that's sort of my background background.
3: Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating, and I, I'll, I'll say a quick word to the listeners. You and I have already had this conversation. This is There's so much nuance in what we're going to talk about today that it's, it's hard to get to in a day or a month, probably much less an hour, and I just want to uh, sort of encourage everyone, as you listen to Jackie and I talk, to try to hold the context of the system and the culture uh, in which you are either coaching people or leading yourself or thinking about uh, there's, there's so much overlap, I think, in all of this. And we'll explicitly get to some of that probably in the second segment, but I'd encourage you to start right away uh, by holding that perspective if you can. So, Jackie, thanks for, thanks for getting us started. Um, so I have the easiest of all questions, right, which is sort of what is unconscious bias. That's <laughs> silly But if you have kind of a working definition that we can hold in our minds as we listen to you today, that might be useful.
0: Sure. I mean, it's interesting hearing you say sort of easy because I think of it as <laughs> it's easy, but I live and breathe this stuff all the time. Yeah. And at the same time, every time I go to a new client or new organization and start talking about unconscious bias, there's so many things that come to mind and so many ways to talk about it. So let me try to focus us in today on this idea that our unconscious biases are basically automatic associations. What are the things that, you know, come to mind automatically when we experience certain stimuli? How do our minds process that information? What are the messages that we're sending and receiving without even thinking it through? Some of you might have read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, and he describes it as, you know, our minds sort through data and reach conclusions without our knowledge. And that is this unconscious concept. We are constantly sorting through data. We're constantly coming to conclusions and not even realizing what's going on. And it is necessary that we not always think through everything because we couldn't get through our day-to-day lives if we had to think about every slice of data that we're sorting through. So it's sort of this necessary process that our brains go through for us without us knowing it. What happens sometimes is that our brain will sort through information, whether it's related or not, and use that information to come to really quick conclusions. And I'll say this, When we're thinking about unconscious bias and thinking about our conclusions, I'm thinking about split-second decisions, what happens immediately, what happens automatically. And Dr. Erin Reed, some of you might be familiar with her. She's out in Chicago. She has a great way of putting it. She says, the human mind does not like to think in a vacuum. So it seeks some information, whether related or not, to which it can anchor its decisions. And that's what starts to happen. There's information in our mind, in our minds. When we're making decisions, those decisions are anchored to some information in our minds. The, the information there is often subtle. Um, our decision-making process is automatic and often unintentional and it results in patterns and behaviors that become an issue when you're dealing with unconscious bias and how you get to your decision-making points. So that's sort of a long way of saying it's really your gut reactions, your initial Mm -hmm. reactions, your automatic associations.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope, and I feel like it's a little too early in the conversation to try to deal with this now, but I hope later we'll have space to talk about how do you, like, it's so hard to be self-aware. Like, this panics me a little bit, to be quite honest. So, the, if you live in this world of, I don't know what I don't know, mm-hmm. and how do, I, how do I know or not know if I have biases, in particular ones that are getting in the way, either for myself or, or towards other people, and so there's this whole little panic area, because it's really hard to see what you can't see.
0: All right. No, absolutely. And I guess we'll, we'll talk about it more later, but let me just say... <laughs> we call it unconscious bias because we are not aware, right? (laughs) Right. But part of this exercise is becoming aware of how the brain works. And once you become more cognizant of what's happening, how your brain is working, then you become more aware of where your biases might come into play. And I've been doing this work for many years now, most recently over the last four years as an outside consultant. So when I talk about this, I talk about what unconscious bias is. I myself have become... So much more aware of my own biases and it's through this process of thinking about these issues and being mindful about them that we become more aware and then we're able to deal with them.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, that's helpful.
3: Um, so I wonder if you could maybe take it a little uh, closer to sort of real life. So How do you see, I think primarily about just in individuals for now, turns out all these leaders we work with happen to be people as well. <laughs> right. uh, like just how do you see uh, these biases showing up for people? perhaps in the context of organizational life, but not yet quite about the organization, just the folks themselves.
0: Sure. Let's, let, let's take it on the individual side first, because you're right. We're, we're dealing with a bunch of individuals within an organization. So as an individual, you know, bias is prevalent. It is, we all have them. Let me just say, I, I like to remind people, we all have biases. They sort of are a fact of life. They're, they're very present, and prevalent. They show up in terms of patterns. I mentioned earlier patterns, practices, behaviors, so to speak, and patterns like who do we think is smart? Who do we think is worth listening to? Or who's worthy of leading us? How do we react when we see a stereotypical African-American name or Asian name on a resume or application? You know, what's that gut reaction we have when we see those names? And interestingly, I'm going to get a little aside before I give a few more examples of how it shows up. I have two children. And when we were thinking about naming our children, my husband and I talked quite a bit about names and implications of names. And doing this work, I've been, you know, steeped in what happens when people see resumes. So we talked a lot about giving names that wouldn't draw an automatic association that might negatively impact them. So anyway, you know, I I, I like to ask people to think, what's your gut reaction when you see a stereotypical name? What's your gut reaction? or What's the first image that comes to mind when you hear a word like leader or elementary school teacher? Do you automatically think of a woman? Or clergy, do you automatically think of a man? What are those first images? Those are the, the things that are sort of rooted in unconscious bias. Like I hear a word, and I automatically have an image of who I see or who I imagine as that person you know, How do we react when we see a black man walking down the street, perhaps dressed a certain way, walking toward us? Is there the fear? Is it this desire to move across the street? What about, you know, again, I have children, so I think a lot about school context. When you go to, you know, your child's school or you're in a social setting and you meet a child's parents, and that's your first meeting of those parents, and they are the same sex. What's your reaction? You know, how do you react? What, do you, you know, what goes through your mind at that point, if you didn't know that already? What are the images? What are the thoughts that jump to mind when you hear a British accent or a Jamaican accent? So that's what ha- those are the things that are in your head. So when all of these unconscious thoughts are in your head, when you encounter situations or people or accents, what comes to mind? What's, you know, the anchor that draws you into a certain place or gives you a certain conclusion about someone or something. And the, the danger is this. Sometimes those anchors or those thoughts in your mind are based on experience and sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes those automatic associations lead us to an incorrect conclusion. So that's where this all gets very dangerous and that's why I say you've got to think about what your biases are so that you can check them. So for example, where it might be um, a problem. You have a bias that might Involve pronouncing someone's name, or you might not call it a bias. Let me just say this. You meet somebody, you hear their name, you can't say it, so do you try to figure out how to say it, or you just give them a, a, a nickname? I actually saw this happen recently with one of my daughter's coaches. He was meeting the team for the first time. He heard everybody's names. There was one name he couldn't pronounce, and he just gave this young lady a nickname. Oh, Right? Right. That's the thing. That's what I'm saying. How do you react? Do you take the time to get to know, or try to pronounce someone's name, or do you make it easy for yourself, not even thinking about the impact on the other person? So let me let me talk about impact for a second there. While I'm thinking about this, sure, please. The impact of our unconscious biases, and that example I just gave, just giving somebody a nickname instead of taking the time to get to know them, that's what we would call, or I would call, uh, a micro inequity, and that is something that is happening to somebody because they're perceived as different um, or you're unfamiliar with them. And it's something that happens repeatedly over time. It's like repeated slights, like just giving you a nickname or just saying your name the way I want to say it, whatever the case may be. Um, And after a while, if somebody is experiencing that over and over and over again, it starts to wear away at them. And that's what comes out of not dealing with our unconscious biases and not trying to educate ourselves around things that are not as familiar to us and trying to get it right in our multi- multicultural society. Let me give you another example. Um, in law firms in particular, you know, we have a lot of meetings, and I mentioned earlier, law firms tend to be overwhelmingly male and white and straight, particularly at the senior and the leadership levels. So this example is one that I've heard in talking to a lot of people, and that is, you know, somebody's conducting a meeting, and during the meeting, this, and we'll say it's a man conducting the meeting, he's making eye contact only with the men in the room, or acknowledging the comments only from the men in the room, even though there are other people in the room as well. That happening repeatedly, and the person doing it may not even notice it, but that's a micro-inequity. And that's all a result of us having these biases and not becoming aware of them and dealing with them.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, by the way, um, Jackie encouraged me to finally go take the implicit association test. Uh, which I did, and so you're right. We all have them, so I'm with you on that now. I wasn't so sure that I did, but I clearly do. So I wonder, uh, given that in particular, and we'll talk. We can talk later about sort of actual things one can do to acknowledge and deal with the fact that you have them. I wonder, just for now, we've probably got three or four minutes left in this first segment. What do we know about sort of how those come about? So obviously, we're each unique in some way, but do we? Are there things that we can point to that sort of create these biases that we have?
0: Sure. Um, Thank you for reminding me. We only have about three minutes left in this segment. (laughs) 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 In the interest of time, let me just focus on, I think, the sort of three ways that I've thought about and that we who do this work think about in terms of how do our unconscious biases come about. One way is um, our experiences. I alluded to this earlier. Uh, We have experiences. Each of us have individual experiences, and sometimes we will have an experience one time, and then every time we encounter uh, that type of person or that person or that that area or that scenario, we might go to that same exact scenario and come to a conclusion that the same thing is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. That's where the danger is. It may very well be that it'll happen again, or it may very well be that in this circumstance it doesn't. So one of the ways that our unconscious biases have formed is our own experiences. And then thinking about our own experiences, we know and we think of ourselves as complex individuals. And one of the things that Brene Myers and the group that I've been working with for the last few years, we talk a lot about lens, this idea that we all have a unique lens on life shaped by our experiences, our perspective, you know, who we are, our culture. And by that, you know, I'll give a, a specific example. I, my experience as an army brat, as a black woman, um, as a now mother and wife, all these things shape how I see the world, how I perceive situations, and I have to acknowledge that I don't see everything the same way as everyone else, so we all have a unique perspective on life. That sort of shapes how our unconscious biases come into play. We don't see everything. We don't know everybody else's experience. We know our own, and so we might have a limited exposure to people who are different than us, which opens the door to unconscious biases. So going back to the first example of, I might have an experience, and the next time I think I'm going to have the same experience. So I might have encountered someone in the street one time and had a negative experience. And my lens on it is, I think the same thing is going to happen again, even though they may share only one thing in common. Maybe it's just their gender, right? So you want to be aware of not over... Um, extending what, you know, you think is going to happen every time based on one experience. Another way that the unconscious biases come into play, and this also plays into this example of seeing running into somebody in the street, we are constantly primed and conditioned by the images we see on TV, what we hear in our society, what we read in the newspaper. All of these things are catalysts for unconscious biases. So, for example, um, if we see repeat, repeated images bombarding us over and over again, like, when we saw protests in ferguson missouri and the way those protests were reported on now ferguson is about 60% 67% black actually and whenever we saw in the news pictures and you know reporting we heard it talked these protests referred to as riots and words like savages rioters thugs You know, even though some of the images were people in the street with their hands in the air, those were the words used. That's priming. Those are stimuli that help to form unconscious biases about people and groups of people.
3: Mm -hmm. Okay. I know that was a little bit of a rush through. We can (laughs) pick that up again after the break if we need to, but thank you for uh, trying to explain it to us. It's fascinating. As I listened to you describe the example earlier of the, I think it was a soccer coach or a coach who just made up a name for someone, it strikes me as how horrifying that sounds when you hear it explicitly told. And yet, how uh, so much of that? Like that person probably didn't mean to do that. There was probably no ill intention there. Right. So I appreciate all those examples. Um, we, uh, when we come back from the break, uh, we are going to move the conversation a little bit towards how do biases show up in organizational cultures. Uh, you're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. My guest today is Jackie Cranford, and I'm Randy Chidham.
2: Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer four cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF accredited certificate in leadership coaching, the executive certificate in transformational leadership, the certificate in health coaching, and the certificate in facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF certified advanced coach education and leadership courses for experienced leadership coaches and leaders at all levels. For more information about our programs and how to apply, Visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email programs at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and
1: get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network.
2: You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host.
3: Welcome back to the show. I'm Randy Chittam. My guest today is Jackie Cranford. Before the break, we were talking about unconscious bias in its sort of largest context and where it shows up the most, obviously, which is in individuals. We're now going to move that conversation towards, uh, closer towards the organizational context. So, Jackie, I don't know if I can ask much other than that, but obviously, bias, organizations are made up of people, people, as you said before the break. People, we all carry these with us. Sometimes we're more and less aware of that. So, surely that transcends and gets into the system and the culture in probably a lot of different ways. So, I can wonder if you could just get us going by telling us what you've seen inside organizations as it relates to bias.
0: Sure. Uh- I think a lot of times when I go into an organization, I really love to focus on individuals first because you really do have to look internally and see how your own biases come into the organization. And then how that plays out for organizations is when you start to look at patterns relating to things like hiring, promotion, um, mentoring, you know, who gets hired, who is promoted, who is mentored informally, you know, who is mentored through formal Mm -hmm. programs, you know, who's getting very sincere mentoring and so forth, you know, who's being heard, and then who's sort of being primed to take on great assignments, those growth assignments, or high-level appointments in the organization, or leadership roles, or key external relationships, you know, who's the face of the organization? Do you see some patterns around this, that certain people or groups tend to be the external relationship people or tend to be in the leadership positions. Another way of thinking about this is, are there in-groups and out-groups in your organization? So, for example, you know, I, and I have to say, having been in the legal environment for so many years, my references are to <laughs> primarily law firms, even though I worked for a short stint in government as well. But in law firms, when we look at hiring, a lot of times, particularly the firms with which I worked, they're looking at specific law schools and put a lot of clout into hiring from certain law schools. That is a very narrow way of thinking about who are the best people come into your organization. That can be but one of many factors you consider. And if you're focused primarily on, say, I want to recruit from this group of 10 schools and only that group of 10 schools, you risk missing opportunities to get great talent (laughs) from other places. So, And I say all this, you know, I want to focus on these 10 schools because a lot of times people have a bias about which schools are the best schools, I'll say, or they consider the best schools. And so they focus on that and they're biased toward particular institutions might cause them to have a bias against others or to even miss opportunities with other institutions. And, you know, you and I talked about this a bit before, Randy. Sometimes people say, well, I'm looking for a good fit for my organization, and I understand that, right? Think about how is it that you're defining fit? What do you mean by fit? And is it just that I know it when I see it? That opens the door to all kinds of biases creeping in. Um, So so when I I hear people say we're looking for a good fit, I then question, well, what do you mean? So let's get down to the specifics of what you mean by that so that we're not masking something else.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it seems particularly insidious when you combine what you
3: talked about in the first segment about thin slicing with looking for fit. That seems Mm -hmm. like a really bad combination.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely, because you can really miss so much when you're just sorting through information very quickly or thin slicing, as you were saying, just really getting to, based on a very little bit of information, I'm making this conclusion, you can miss So much. And, you know, as an organization, we want to make sure that our organizations are healthy, are diverse, are inclusive, are not missing opportunities to bring in great talent and innovation and new ideas. And that's what can happen when you're narrowly focused and thinking, let's just find fit and I'll know it when I see it, as opposed to being more purposeful about how you find the right fit. Yeah,
3: I think it's I'll know it when I see it, and it's I'll know it when I feel it. Right? Yes. Yeah, it'll, yeah. it'll feel good in some way. Right. also right, it right. seems particularly <laughs> in cities. Yeah. So you started us on this path of fit. Um, I think you and I shared the same New York Times article where they uh, used one of my favorite expressions in this world, uh, and they talked about fit gone rogue, <laughs> um, which is exactly where you started to take us. And what's interesting to me, and so I want to sort of put together this conversation with the conversation we had with Jerry last week, and I believe, by the way, that this is a both-and. I don't think this is a choice between two things, right. just for those of you listening. So Jerry talked about how there are really clearly cultural indicators that actually transcend different organizations. It's not even just that there's sort of a quote-unquote right answer for this organization. Like there's sort of a little bit of a teeny that he would, if he's listening, he just rolled over a bit, like a little bit of a right answer for all organizations. So clearly there's some benefit to having a clearly defined, and that was one of his uh, key points was that you have to have precision around how you define it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, clearly, there's benefits to that. And then, clearly, there has to be a downside to when that goes rogue, right? When we over assign uh, a desire to have people who will only fit the culture or fit the culture as we understand it. I wonder just uh, you know, how you would start to think about reconciling those things or just how you, what perspective you would hold about those two things in balance one another.
0: No, absolutely. I gave a lot of thought to this, particularly after last week's segment and recognizing, yes, culture is absolutely important and, and it's different from one organization to another. And you do want to find people that complement your culture, that help your culture, you know, sort of move forward and stay relevant and, you know, serve your clients if you're, you know, client serving or whatever your organization is doing. It is important. So the, the, the fine balance for leaders and for those who are purveyors of the culture is, all right, how are we defining our culture? Are we defining it in a way that is inclusive, right? Is our culture something that everybody understand, Everybody in the organization and externally to some extent, they understand it, they own it, they embrace it, and it works for them. And sometimes what I will see in organizations is they say, this is our culture, we are a culture that X, and yet that works for for some of the people in the organization, but not for everyone in the organization. And it may not be working for some people they want to have in the organization, but those folks haven't been sort of brought to the table to be a fully a part of that culture. So, for example, when, when you're thinking about, well, what is the culture? How do we define it? Is it inclusive? So does it make sense to everybody in the organization? Are there aspects of what we say how we say, you know, how we present ourselves that cause some of our valued colleagues not to feel included, not to feel like they're part of this. So I know it's sort of a, I'm even using my hands now to talk about the fine balance, balance (laughs) of maintaining culture. Now, I'll I'll use another example. One of the firms I was with, we were big on our culture, and our firm had been around over 100 years, and, and one of the great things about that organization was, They looked at culture and periodically checked it and talked about it and made adjustments where it was necessary because the firm that started over 100 years ago was very different and had a very different uh, population. So culture as it meant in a more diverse and inclusive environment was expressed in a different way. Does that make sense? I
3: think so, yeah. (laughs) It leads me to a place of curiosity, and I don't – this might be oversimplifying, so if it is, just tell me you don't want to play, and we'll move on to something else. But the, it, it strikes me that, in a sense, the, the unconscious biases that I hold individually, part of what makes them dangerous is that they're hard to see, right? Yeah, right. Uh, the unconscious biases that a culture holds, a sort of a collective sense mm-hmm. of a place, part of what makes that dangerous is that they get probably unconsciously reinforced. Mm-hmm. Right, so that they, I would imagine them almost becoming stronger, so that that makes my question a little harder, even. But I wonder have you seen organizations and systems and cultures do things that, like, like the actual doing of, you talked about, uh, that they checked on their culture? Like, would you have any level of sort of advice or thinking that, that gets a little closer to what people can actually do about this inside a culture?
0: How do I pay attention
3: to it? How do I attend to it?
0: Yes. Okay. Good. Thank you. Cause that I can answer. <laughs> so in any number of directions. <laughs> I <thought you> <laughs> sure. But that how do you pay attention to it? How do you attend to it? One of the things that immediately jumps to mind is periodically the check-in. Do an assessment. You know who engage your employees and your colleagues in, get their opinions, get their ideas about culture, find out what are you experiencing here in the environment, what do you know about our culture, are, you know, how much are people aware of it, how much are they buying in, how much are they helping you to perpetuate the culture. Now, what you started saying earlier reminded me of a danger in an environment where you have a group of people who are leading the organization who are very much the same So maybe not as diverse as the organization overall. And that leadership team is responsible for the culture. And that leadership team continually defines the culture, uh, you know, spreads the culture and everything. There is a danger that they're missing the value that diversity brings to decision-making. So if the leadership team is not diverse and they're the ones who are defining culture and they're not getting other input, they're not getting diverse voices to the table to talk about culture as it relates in, their own, in different people's experiences, then the risk is they perpetuate a culture that might have embedded biases, that might have things that are very harmful to some of the co- their colleagues in the organization, and they don't open the door to being able to address those. So one way to do that is doing a broad assessment, talking to a lot of different people about the culture. And that's also a way to make sure that people are buying into the culture and what the organization stands for and what the organization is doing, when people are asked their opinion, they feel valued and they feel part of it. I can think of a couple of examples of, you know, in doing this research over the years, thinking about um, Toyota, for example, many years ago, when they started to really take off in the market and overtake uh, where some of the American automotive companies were. It was they were inviting ideas. From their colleagues. And they were implementing a lot of new ideas, but they did that by opening up the doors to give people an opportunity and saying, hey, we want to hear from you. And they were flooded with so many new ideas from people within the organization. Similarly, Starbucks a number of years ago when um, they were not doing as well as they'd like in the market, they came up with this idea of mystarbucks.com, basically a website that invited people to put their ideas into practice or to give them ideas. And simple things came out of that. For example, you know those sticks that you put into the opening, the small opening on your cup when you have a to-go cup? I love those. Right, yes. That <laughs> came from a Starbucks customer who was a commuter, right? And uh-huh. she would get her cup. The little hole in the top of the cup sometimes would allow um, liquid to spill. And she came up with the idea of that stick. And that was in the early days of the MyStarbucks.com reaching out to get innovative ideas from customers, which, you know, that engenders loyalty, you know, from your colleagues, from your customers. So things like that, inviting a wealth of ideas from a lot of different people. That's one way to check (laughs) your culture, to check in on the climate, to see how people are doing in your culture, to see how people feel about the organization and its culture. Um, And then, you know, you might might open the floodgates. So then as a leader, you've got to be responsible for sort of managing and maintaining that or managing how you deal with all the input that you receive. But to get the input is just a great way of, checking on your culture and figuring out are there tweaks necessary is the culture working for everybody here Mm
3: -hmm. yeah i knew uh i knew a senior leader once in effect it happens to be the person we're going to talk to next week on the show Uh who used the metaphor of health when he talked about culture and this idea that you know you don't stay healthy by accident right it has to constantly be attended to and Paid attention to, and in fact, Jerry, you said something sort of similar last week. So, yeah, I'm not sure quite what the connection is, but I'll, my mind jumped to the question of fear, mm-hmm. and, and so I hear what you're asking of leaders, and I think that certainly seems like something we'd expect our leaders to be able to do. Right. It's one thing, as you know, to invite. Um, contribution, right, and feedback mm-hmm. is another to listen really seriously and, and take that seriously.
0: Right.
3: Uh, those aren't the same thing as we know. But right. I wonder just, and this might even be sort of an intuitive question for you, but just what do you notice about how fear gets in the way of mm-hmm. the system's ability to do this sort of thing? Mm.
0: So fear seems to drive so many people who are trying to, um, you know, address change or to make change in an organization or to address diversity and inclusion, and I actually, on Friday, was just talking to a fellow consultant about fear-based leadership and how unhealthy it can be. Now, I get the reality of fear, and, you know, I think of my own experience of leading a team and inviting feedback and subjecting myself to 360 reviews, and, man, that, you know, it's hard. (laughs) And yet necessary, because the feedback that I received, sometimes hard to swallow, and sometimes my immediate reaction was, I can't believe she thinks that. That's not at all what I intended. And yet, I, as a leader, had to say, that's not what I intended, but that's what she received or that's what she experienced or that's what she felt. So what do I need to do with that? I need to hear it and I need to do something about it. If it is me paying attention to how I lead this individual as opposed to that individual or if I'm getting flooded by ideas, then it's my role as a leader to say, okay, thank you for all these great ideas, let's prioritize, let's make sure that these are in line with where we're going in this organization, or, and, and, and of course, that fine balance of not trying to maintain a status quo, but make sure that you're very purposeful in what you're doing. So let me give some specific examples. So when I was inside a law firm leading diversity and inclusion initiatives, as soon as we started you know. Okay, as soon as we started asking people about their experiences and what they wanted, everybody wanted so much. So what I had to do as a leader is take the best of the best, and say, I've heard you, we've got all this information, here's how we're going to prioritize, and we're going to put certain things in categories, and we're going to, you know, put this out over five years. So here's what we're going to work on. And then constantly reminding them in year one, here are the things we're going to work on. And in year two, you know, just so that people knew that they had been heard and also recognized we cannot do everything. We need to know that what we're going to do is going to be successful, so we're going to do it in chunks and bite sizes. We're going to manage this process. Mm-hmm. Excellent.
3: Thank you for, uh, for that. So we are um, talking today about unconscious bias and culture in organizations. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. My guest is Jackie Cranford, and we'll be right back.
1: markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network
2: founded in 2012 the institute for transformational leadership itl is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer four cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF accredited certificate in leadership coaching, the executive certificate in transformational leadership, the certificate in health coaching, and the certificate in facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF certified advanced coach education and leadership courses for experienced leadership coaches and leaders at all levels. For more information about our programs and how to apply, Visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITL programs at georgetown.edu or call 202 687 7000. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Welcome back.
3: As you probably know by now, we're talking to Jackie Cranford, and we're, we're exploring that space where bias and unconscious drivers and motivators kind of intersect with leadership and culture. And, Jackie, when we, um, when we left from the last segment, you were talking about fear, uh, and the role of fear that, that in some ways I always think of fear as, as uh, kind of keeping us playing small ball, if you will. Mm-hmm. And Bob Anderson, which is a name that a lot of people on the, uh, on the line will, will know, talks about the leadership in life in general is always balancing this tension between purpose and safety, trying to create something bigger, but getting out of our own way around fear. And part of what clued me into that is that you were talking about having a clear future, that this is what we can do this is what's possible here. And, I again, this is not something that you and I particularly prepped for. I don't know if it makes sense or not now, but it felt like a good connection to just where we were and where we're headed, which is really around this conversation of the special role of leadership, both in creating culture but creating culture with the awareness that I bring biases to this, right? That's not really a question anymore. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> is that a good way to kind of get into this leadership question?
0: Sure. I think, I mean, the last thing you said is just bring the awareness that I bring bias into this. So A lot of times when I'm talking to leaders, I think the first issue is just even being aware, right? Being aware that you're bringing bias and also all the people you're leading are bringing their own biases into play. So that awareness helps you to even think through, all right, now that I am aware of that, what do I do about it, right? Because what I don't want to happen is my biases, the biases that are happening in my organization or on my team are going unchecked, right? I want to be able to be aware so that we can actually check them. And by that, I mean interrupt them, stop them, address them. And often we are afraid of, of digging into these issues or even talking about or revealing some of these things that we have been so good about keeping under cover keeping under wraps or not dealing with. So I think that's where the fear is. The fear is, I don't want to open the floodgates on these issues because this is a scary area. And to start to acknowledge my own biases, to see them in other people, and then to address them in other people is also very scary, right? And it only comes with becoming more comfortable, practicing, having conversations around this. So for leaders, I always say, create a culture, create an environment in which it is okay to talk about these issues, to acknowledge these issues that we have bias, and because I have bias, I want to address them, or to be a leader who says, if you notice something that I'm doing and it's coming out a way that is uh, not balanced, that is not fair, you, th- you see a bias, please let's have a conversation about it. Who you know, It's hard for anybody to open themselves up like that, and I go back to my example of doing a 360. It was hard. To open myself up to um, feedback from people all around me, and yet there was so much value in getting that feedback. But that only comes when you're comfortable having the conversation. So, as leaders, there's a part of there's a little fear, but you have to get to a point at which you are comfortable having conversations around these unfamiliar, uncomfortable issues, and you're creating an environment where people are, are willing to engage in conversation around them. And I think one of the things that helps is thinking about the fact that. I will make mistakes as a leader. I will make mistakes dealing with these issues I'm not all that familiar with, and I need to do that to move forward. I need to be willing to make mistakes and not repeat those same mistakes, but to learn from them so that I can move beyond this. So if you're, if you're recognizing that you're not going for perfection, you're willing to try and you're willing to make mistakes and you're willing to have conversations and be authentic about it, then you're, the people you're leading within your organization, the people on your teams, start to see that authenticity and see that willingness and say, You're leading by example, and you're setting an example of somebody who says, Let's address these things. Does that sort of help, Randy, with yeah, what you're Yeah, it does, and it, and it leads me to an even harder
3: question, <laughs> okay. I'm afraid, which is, or curiosity at least, which is, What on earth these, like, even if you just sort of have a made up answer to this, I know you've <laughs> thought about this so much, like, why? Do you think this is such a scary kind of space for people? What makes this harder than other things? We're willing to talk about poor strategy making and poor decision making and, like, all sorts of other things that get in the way. Mm
0: -hmm. What is it about
3: this, do you think, or is that just too
0: big No, You know, I think (laughs) that's a great question. And (laughs) as you were talking about I think it's because it's so personal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I started talking about this stuff in my law firm as a new associate, there were only certain people I felt comfortable talking to about issues of diversity within a law firm that wasn't at that time very diverse. So within my own circle of people who were very close to me or I was comfortable with, I would talk to them about it. Fast forward 20 years later, I'm trying to get people to talk across different, across different layers within organizations about these issues, and it is very uncomfortable. And people say to me, we don't talk about this stuff at work. You know, this is, these personal issues of how I feel about or what I, where I come from and my experiences, I have never shared this with people. In fact, you know, I think about 15 years ago doing diversity training within my then law firm, and people would say, oh, diversity, that's about everybody else. It's not about me. But once we started having conversations and there were young white male associates, who, young white male straight associates who came in thinking, this is not about me at all. I'm here because this is mandatory. And then throughout the conversation, they would start talking about what they brought to the law firm. So, for example, they had never admitted that they came from a place of poverty in some instances, and that was something they held close to themselves because they didn't want to reveal that. I am not from generations of, you know, lawyers or educated people, and that's something I keep to myself. So to have people talk about these things that are deeply personal, that they've spent most of their professional lives hiding from the workplace makes it very difficult. Uh, But I think that's why we'd rather talk about strategy and work than talk about our own discomfort or our own biases or even diversity and inclusion more broadly.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you and I, I think in one of our first conversations, we, we used the shame word, right, that mm-hmm. it's easy to feel, I think for some people, it's easy to feel shame around this, and that right. there's something primal and evolutionary almost about the the part of my brain that is drawn to people who are like me yeah. and threatened or feel at risk by people who are less like me. So it's right. we come by it naturally, but it That's doesn't right. serve us very well in the world that we live in. Right, right. Uh, today. Oh, thank you for at least trying to tackle <laughs> that. Sorry to throw that at you. Um, so the other thing that we talk a lot about in ITL is this idea of obviously transformation, but this idea of complexity. And, and we won't do a lecture on complexity, but one of the ways that we talk about it is that when things are truly complex, like our favorite working definition of it, mm-hmm. is that the relationship between cause and effect starts to break down, which means my ability to predict things uh, starts to fall apart, and therefore, my ability to plan and all the things that we've sort of taught leaders and managers for the last probably 100 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, they don't work as well in today's mm-hmm. organization. So, mm-hmm. uh, we have that has led us with some really great thinkers out in the universe about to, to think about complexity as sort of emergence and less. I'm, I'm in some ways less responsible as a leader for like predicting and planning and getting it on paper and having a you know, an Excel spreadsheet that tracks our every Mm -hmm. move, Mm -hmm. you may still do that. Uh, I'm more responsible for being present to my system and my culture and my environment, and the people there, and trying to get a sense of what's trying to emerge, right, what's trying to get life, if you will. And that, to me, changes the game for leadership. And it Mm -hmm. seems like that would bring the possibility of biases even more into play. So I wonder how you would put all that together.
0: So until your last statement about bringing the possibility of biases even more into play I just kept thinking there's such an opportunity here and I know you know I've been reading about you know organizations and our and individuals and we want sameness and there's comfort in sameness and sometimes communications are easier or it just we seem to work together seamlessly when we're so much the same and yet you were talking about uh, in this environment uh, complexity comes into play I see opportunity because I think that's where diversity and diversity of experiences and opinions really helps out when things are really complex and I, as a leader, can't map out exactly what's going to happen. That's where I need to draw upon the value that diversity brings within my organization because there are different people in the organization with different perspectives. Bringing them to the table to try to address the complexities with a lot of different perspectives I think is opportunity, right? And I think of it as it is scary at the same time, when you invite a lot of difference to try to solve your problems and to try to figure out where to go next and how to map it out, then I think you have a better opportunity to come to um, sort of as a group, here is our strategy for moving forward in light of this complexity. And again, it gets back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, being willing to be vulnerable and to make mistakes, right, and being willing to say, as a leader, I am going to be inquisitive. I'm going to be open. I'm trying to be thoughtful. And I recognize that I need all of you to be this way. I need you all to be inquisitive and thoughtful so that we can work together to find our solutions in this very complex environment. Um, And I think that sometimes when we have you know, diversity of opinions, and we're scared. We don't want to bring them all to the table because, like, it'll be easier for me to make decisions if I don't have too much from too many different people coming into play. Mm-hmm. That's a missed opportunity as far as I see it. Because if you bring in diversity and you bring in difference and you're not hearing and inviting people to contribute their all, then you're sort of, you're, you're cutting against yourself and the whole reason you brought in this great talent to help you through these complex times.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I have to say I like your view of it better than the one I presented.
0: So, a more I'm a more positive, Find a way, positive looking at
3: yeah, it. Well, no, you're right. I guess I didn't, I did, there was some negative judgment in my way of thinking about it, but I, I don't think I really, really meant it. Like, I think you're absolutely right that as things are almost more unsettled, that unsettledness creates opportunity yeah. for us to think and behave differently if we're not overly controlled by that safety and fear that we were talking about. Because I think that's the other thing that can come up during... These complex times, right? We just get fearful.
0: Right, right. And we and so hold on
3: even tighter right. to that which we think we know. Yeah. Because right, that brain loves that certainty so much, and uh, that would unfortunately get in the way of the opportunity you're talking about, but I can certainly see that both are possible. And so this conversation is probably especially useful. You know, a lot of us make most of our living uh, coaching leaders, and as we think about how we work with leaders during those kinds of times, that perspective that you had, I think, is uh, tremendously uh, useful. So I just have one more question before we get to some closing questions. So we're probably four or five minutes away from our end time today. So one of the things we talk a lot about in ITL as well is this idea that, you know, we think of the leader's responsibility as to create new futures and and sort of create new possibilities and enroll and align people towards that new future. And yet we also know that, Um, who I am, uh, is a source of both possibility and limited possibility around what I can see as actually possible. So, uh, if we, if we broaden back out almost back to the beginning of our conversation where bias had a fairly broad definition, Mm -hmm. do you have a quick thought or two about that before we get to finishing up for the day? The who I am is limited. Uh, What I can see is limited by who I am and who I am, uh, unconsciously is a big part of who I am.
0: Mm-hmm. So I automatically, my automatic association, where I go with that is, again, the value of diversity. So when you realize who I am limits what I see and gets back to the conversation we were having about our lenses are all unique to each of us individually. Mm-hmm. And because we have this unique perspective, there are things we don't see. We have blind spots, as, as Malcolm Gladwell talked about in his book, Blink. Mm-hmm. there are places where we can't see, but if we are surrounding ourselves, with a diverse group of people with different experiences and ideas, then we're enabling our teams, our organizations to work together to cover as many of those blind spots as possible, right, to address them because we have a lot of different people with different perspectives and different ideas. So while I, I'm sorry, while I'm limited, Um, my whole team has greater capacity if we're working together effectively. And, you know, what you were saying, sometimes it's hard to manage a team with such diverse ideas and opinions. And when you recognize that and you're very purposeful as a leader to be, you know, raising awareness not only for yourself but for your team, that we know that we are going to have to work together as a team, we're going to have some differences, and we know that we have an inclination towards sameness. But being aware of that, we're going to be very purposeful about, you know, slowing down checking our, our decision-making processes where we can, um, checking our biases where we can because we're coming, becoming more aware of them as we do this work, educating ourselves and others and that might mean getting yourselves into relationships that are not your norm so you're getting exposed beyond your regular circle of people and friends, your regular circle of people in the organization so that you are broadening your own education and you're educating others and also priming yourself with counter-exemplars. So for example, I talked earlier about our biases come from things, our experience things we've seen and done, start to prime yourselves with the opposite of the things that you think or assume right off the bat.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Jackie, I'm, I apologize for doing this. I think I mistimed our last segment. I think we're actually out of time. We left a great question on the table, which is what is sort of the underlying capacities for broadening uh, our ability to deal with unconscious bias. Maybe we'll do that one next time. For now, I have to say thank you so much, Jackie, for being on the show, and for more importantly uh the work that you're doing out in the world, it obviously has probably never mattered more. So thank you so much for today.
0: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
3: Yeah. You've been listening to Inside Transformational Leadership with Jackie Cranford and Randy Chittam. Have a terrific week.
2: Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.